Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here at Spark at Rhymes. And it's my privilege to close out our series on the Gospel of Luke by fleshing out the end of Luke, chapter 24. First of all, I'd like to thank a couple of people. Number one, Darren Liu and Darren Phillip to lead us today. And we also always have Junior on, on hand. And of course, Aiden. And so Junior gets extra props today because Junior brought the trailer over because Kevin isn't here today. And there were some mishaps along the way. It was a comedy of errors, and Junior made it through. So thank God and thank Junior. And also you can notice that our TV is much smaller now. Uh, Etz is actually celebrating the High Holy Days. It's uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur coming up. And so they have taken the big TV with them over to the JCC to celebrate there. And so we're going to make do with a little one here. Hopefully it still works out. And um, actually one more thing. Uh, we learned a little bit earlier today that there's a member of uh, a member of family of someone in our community who is currently passing away. She's in the hospital right now, and her family. Always gets me. So her family is with her right now. Not a lot of people can come to the hospital because of COVID. Um, so they're, they're, she's on hospice, and they're just kind of biding her time. Her name is Judy, and she's in San Francisco. So if you don't mind, I'd like to pray for her and her family right now. Lord God, you are awesome and wonderful. You have done so many things in our lives, things that we've seen, things that we haven't seen. And you have been a part of Judy's life. We pray for her right now as she prepares to see you. We pray that you would give her strength, that you would give her energy, that you would give her time to share with her family whatever she needs to say. We also pray for her family, that they would be strong as much as they can be, but they would also learn to lean on you and the people that you've put around them to take them through this. And God, we're all going to approach this time at some point in our lives, and we hope we can do it with grace with mercy, and also with the knowledge that you are there with us. We pray in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit for Judy. Amen. So, today I have a message from the end of Luke chapter 24. It's called Fully Divine, Fully Human. That'll make sense in a little bit. And you might be wondering where Kevin and Danielle are today. They are taking a well-deserved vacation, as uh, Ms. Pamela told you earlier, and they will be back with us next Sunday. But... Last Sunday, Kevin took us through the first portion of Luke chapter 24, discussing the resurrection and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And if you didn't know, Kevin was a university lecturer. And as he was speaking about Plato and forms and ideas last week, I was sitting right over there where Pastor Tom's sitting, and I was flashing back to my days in seminary. So back in the summer of 2008, I was in a systematic theology class, and there were about 15 of us students. At age 32, I was the third oldest person in the class. Next person over was 50. Next person over that was 55. And then the other 12 students were between the ages of 22 to 27. We felt like grandparents being around them sometimes. Uh, some of them were fresh out of college, and everyone was serving in some form of church ministry. The popular classes for this group were preaching, spiritual formation, and pastoring. And pretty much anything that had a real-life, real-time application for them in their ministries. The not-so-popular classes included church history, biblical Greek, and this class that we were taking, systematic theology. No one was big fans of this. Anyways, 
the professor of this theology class focused on the nature of Jesus. Is he a human being? Is he God? The orthodox or standard doctrine on his nature is that Jesus is fully human in every way, having lived out the full human experience in its joys, in its sufferings, in its pain, in its strengths, and in its weaknesses. And Jesus is fully divine in every way, being fully God in power, in perspective, in proximity. This seems like a given to all of us, but this wasn't the overarching belief at the beginning of the faith 2,000 years ago. The idea that someone could be fully human and fully divine was a strange concept. Plus, as a human being, Jesus never definitively said that he was God. He inferred it, absolutely, but he never said, I, Jesus of Nazareth, am God. And this is something that a committed adherent to Judaism, like Jesus was, would never say. So that would be blasphemous and insane. And so with this uncertainty in their minds, the followers of Jesus centuries afterwards, were wrestling with their understanding, and they developed multiple views. One such view was adoptionism. This stated that Jesus was not God, but a human being tested by God and then granted divine power. He was adopted as a son of God and then became God after the resurrection. And this was not a brand new concept, because adoptionist stories existed within Greek mythology. And remember that the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus was referred to as a son of God. But if this was all the case, and Jesus was only adopted as God, then on what authority could Jesus speak and act? On the other end of the spectrum was something called docetism, dokeo being a Greek word meaning seems. In this view, Jesus was fully divine, but only seemed to be human. This was built upon the Greek notion that gods would sometimes take on the form of humans or, or creatures. And then also there was this Gnostic idea, which Kevin talked about last week, that the body is evil and the, the soul is perfect. So with that in mind, why would God ever desecrate himself by becoming human in the flesh? But this meant that Jesus didn't really suffer and die and rise again. So was there really victory over sin and death if Jesus was only appearing to be human? Most views on the nature of God, they're labeled with heresies, and they gravitate around these two poles. And there are a lot more. In a lot of ways, the reason why early Christians kept returning to this orthodox view is because anything less than full humanity and full divinity created problems within their understanding of God. If Jesus wasn't fully God, then his actions lacked true authority or true power. And if Jesus wasn't fully human, then his words lacked empathy or true understanding of the human condition. And so after a few class sessions that focused on these heresies, most of the students said aloud to the professor what some of you might be thinking right now. Why in the world are we talking about any of this? Most of us are already serving in ministry. We're seeing real-life problems in our community, and we need to be equipped to how to handle them. You're telling us about 1,800-year-old arguments about who Jesus is. We know who Jesus is. He called us to move, and we're here to be equipped to do that. So, professor, equip us to move. Now, she tried to address our concerns talking about how it was relevant for her as a deacon in the Orthodox Church, but it still took us a few weeks to understand why this was so important, because it does matter. Those real-life problems we're looking to fix are in part rooted in how people understand their existence, their purpose in life. 
And that is tied to how we see the origin and the originator of our existence. These arguments are at the root of how we understand God. And followers of Jesus, just like us, have wrestled with them. So, if you haven't considered these things for yourself, then how are you, all-knowing seminary students, going to help guide others in their understanding of God? And if you're going to be following Jesus yourself, then how you perceive and relate to Jesus depends upon his identity. Is he God, perfect in every way? Is he a human being, with weaknesses and prone to failure, just like you? So a group of students were given information, but because of their preconceived notions, they weren't able to understand its relevance off the bat, and they questioned everything about it. But once someone connected the dots for them, it opened the floodgates. And then they were able to connect the dots on all sorts of things. And this is kind of what we're going to be seeing here in the last half of Luke chapter 24. For three years, the disciples of Jesus had followed Jesus up and down Israel, hearing him teach, seeing his miracles and interactions with all sorts of people, and not fully understanding what Jesus was saying and doing. And then Jesus sacrificed his life, and it had the disciples thrown for a loop. Why? What were we doing out here for the last three years? Who was Jesus exactly? Did we waste our time following him? Three days later, they started to hear of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And the disciples are again thrown for a loop. He came back from the dead? What do we do with this? This is where we're going to start our story for today. Luke chapter 4, verses 13 to 49. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. What very day? Easter Sunday. Now, I don't know about you, but my whole life, this story has always been separated from the resurrection account. So I never even thought that this was happening on the same exact day as Jesus' resurrection. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. What had happened? The last seven days of Jesus' life, including his death and his apparent resurrection that morning. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. First of all, for a once dead man, Jesus is certainly getting around. In Jerusalem that morning, and now seven miles outside of the city that afternoon. Secondly, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Not they didn't recognize him, but they were kept from recognizing him. Hold on to that. And Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. This moment of grief overwhelmed them and forced them to stop moving. I just had one a little bit earlier. Have you ever had a moment when you were overcome by something and you just had to stop? I know that when I remember a deceased loved one, sometimes I get overcome and I just have to stop whatever I'm doing just to feel that sorrow, just to let myself feel it. That is how much Jesus meant to these two people. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? If a stranger were to come up to you when you're overcome with grief, would you start to tell them why? Honestly, yes. That grief has made you vulnerable. And with your guard down, you'll share things that you wouldn't tell your own mother. And because of that grief, all of their thoughts started spilling out. 
And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. These two people are telling this apparent stranger how their hopes were crushed. And three days later, they're still crushed. And then they share more. Moreover, some of the women, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. Yes, this morning, some of our community said that they saw an empty tomb where they expected our prophet's lifeless body. But some of them saw, said they saw messengers of God. In other words, stranger on the road, we're thrown for a loop. We don't know what to believe about any of this. And Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Here Jesus jumps back into the role he always does. He takes on the role of rabbi. You're confused? Then it's time for me to step in to help you understand. So they drew near to the village to where they were going. He acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Interesting. Why was Jesus pretending to continue the journey when he intended to stay with them? I don't know for certain, but I can guess. Remember, Jesus is a rabbi, a teacher. And there's nothing better for teachers. Well, teachers tell me if this is true. But as far as I know, there is nothing better for teachers than for your students to be genuinely engaged in what you're sharing with them. This is like the class period being over. The bell rings, and the teachers dismiss the students. But the students don't leave the classroom because they're so engrossed in what they're talking about. So Jesus and the two disciples sit down for dinner, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Jesus joins his two unwitting disciples for dinner, and he repeats the actions that he performed at the Last Supper four days before. Back then he said to them, eat this bread to remember me. And what's happening now? They're eating this bread, and they're remembering him, and they're recognizing him. And then when Jesus disappears from their presence, they say, how did we not recognize him? We were doing everything we've done with him for years now. Walking on the road, listening to him teaching. Hmm, how indeed. And then they rose at the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They could have waited till the next morning. It was late, not, not shown here, but it was late, it was dark, and they were going to start walking back seven miles in the dark. But when you found that your dead teacher and your hope for the nation has come back to life, you're not going to wait to tell everyone who knew and loved him. If they had phones, you best believe they'd be calling them right now. But of course they didn't, so. Having to return to Jerusalem, the place they had just come from that morning, they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, 
and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now imagine that you're the other disciples. You're feeling just like Cleopas and his companion felt. The one we had hoped to redeem Israel was now dead. You went to see for yourselves, and you saw nothing. Now, these two come running in, who left earlier today, they come running in, and they're telling us he's alive. What in the H-E double hockey sticks is happening? Well, this is happening. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you doubt, why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my feet and my hands, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you, have, you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Now, when you read what Jesus says to his disciples, Oh foolish ones, and so slow of heart to believe, and why are you so troubled, and why do you, doubts arise in your minds? It sounds kind of condescending, doesn't it? It sounds like he's kind of admonishing them. Come on, what's wrong with you? Why don't you get it? But at the same time, the story has told us that the disciples were kept from understanding Jesus. So that seems just a little bit unfair. But Jesus, ever the rabbi, presses forward with his lesson. And while they were still, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. His point being, dead people don't eat. Living people do. I really have come back from the dead. And then here's the payoff. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written around me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of all these things. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus had been criticizing his students throughout the book of Luke for not understanding. And he continues to do so in our reading today. And then he opened their minds... The implication is that they couldn't understand until that point, and yet he was still ripping on them. It's kind of messed up. Maybe. Maybe this was some kind of form of tough love where you encourage someone through admonishment. Maybe. Or maybe it was all a setup for Jesus, the teacher, to make a definitive point. I've been pushing you to understand. I've been pushing you to drop your doubts and trust me. I've been pushing you to have faith in what God is doing. And the truth is, You couldn't. With all of your preconceived notions, it was impossible for you to understand, to trust, and to have faith without God's direct intervention, without God enabling you to do this. This was too big for you to comprehend. And the only way for me to get you to to understand the momentousness of all of this was to prepare you, to challenge you through all this time. It's kind of like saying, hey, I want you to climb this tree. And you're saying, okay, this tree, I'll give it a shot. And then you try climbing the tree, and you fail, you fall down. And then I criticize you, criticize you for not falling, falling, climbing the tree. How can you not get up there? What's keeping you from getting up that tree? And so you try again, and you can't do it. And I say, how can you not get up there? And you try again. 
and you can't do it. And I say, how can you not get up there? And then after failing multiple times and me criticizing you multiple times, you say in exasperation, this tree is too hard to climb. Who can do this? And then I provide a ladder. And you realize that you couldn't have made it up this tree without the ladder. What makes attaining their goal possible is the ladder. And by continually asking you why you couldn't, and then you finally attaining the goal with the ladder, then you learn to appreciate the ladder that much more. It's all about the ladder. This is what I think Jesus is doing here. By bringing so much attention to the disciples' inability to understand, he's actually reinforcing how important the means of understanding is. And the means of understanding is Jesus himself. Jesus is the means by which they can understand. Jesus is the lens through which they can perceive the scriptures for what they are. And when they understand the scriptures, the law of Moses, the Psalms of prophets, then what can they understand? Loops right back. They can understand Jesus' teachings. They can understand Jesus' miracles. They can understand his actions. They can understand Jesus himself. Jesus becomes the key to their understanding. Now, this all-encompassing circular nature is reflected in this prayer by St. Patrick. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Christ. May your salvation, Lord, be ever with us. What makes it all possible? What imbues every aspect of our understanding and resulting actions? Christ. He is the subject, the object, and even the verb. Now, am I reaching? Eh, perhaps. But this is how I'm interpreting this. And a few weeks back, I had talked about seeing scripture as a precious jewel, a gem that you can turn and see a new aspect to the verse, new understanding of God as you turn it. So this is what I've just shared with you is merely just one way you could see this passage. But before I go, I'd like to turn this gem of a passage just a little more, just one more time to show you one more thing that I love about this passage. At the beginning of our time today, I had talked about the nature of Jesus and how people struggle to understand who Jesus is from the start of the faith. Is he human? Is he divine? And to what degree is he both? Well, since my childhood, I've always been presented this story about the road to Emmaus as a proof of Jesus' divinity. If we read the Gospel of Luke without our faith background informing it, without any preconceived notions of who the characters are, if we read this without any prior knowledge... What is clear about Jesus is that he is a human being. He was born, he lived, he walked, he ate, he spoke, he cried, he loved, he experienced hope, he felt fear, he was wounded, and he died. And in our passage today, Jesus is continuing these things. He's speaking, he's traveling, he's sitting, he's eating, he has scars. In this last passage, Jesus' human nature is clear. But there's something else. In his letter to the church at Philippi, the Apostle Paul identifies Jesus as more. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This the idea of kenosis, of emptying, is one way to understand how Jesus can be human and divine. Humans are finite, limited in our abilities, our knowledge, and our physical being. On the other hand, God, according to many faith traditions and many methods of philosophy, God is infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Now, applying this idea of kenosis, of emptying from Paul, the way that Jesus as God was able to experience self, full humanity was to proactively empty himself, to self-limit his divine nature in order to be human as we are human. Again, throughout the book of Luke, we see Jesus as fully human, but showing glimpses of his divine ability and knowledge. And here, at the end of the book, Jesus seems to be flexing. He is showing his divine nature. He has risen from the dead, not a natural human ability. I don't know if you guys know that. He's appearing in Jerusalem, then Emmaus, then back in Jerusalem. And he isn't traveling, per se. He's just suddenly present. And he isn't, and he's opening the minds of his disciples, divinely inspiring them, as it were, to understand scripture in light of his identity. It's as if by his actions, Jesus is saying, you looking for God? God here now. And now, once again alive and having filled himself with divine power, Jesus could have appeared to the chief priests and leaders who doubted him and said, here I am. Everything I said and did is true. Now act upon my teachings. He could have appeared before Caesar in Rome and said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Jews in Palestine. Love them. Love one another. He could have appeared to the entire world, all the kings of the world, in a moment of time. And he could have said, I have died and returned in order for you to know God. Now I call upon you to follow my example and live for God and neighbor. But think about it. When one of our loved ones die, what do we often express? Regrets. I wish I had spent more time with them. I wish I had had that conversation I wanted to have with them. I wish I had gone and done more for them. I wish I had visited them more often. I wish that I had told them that I loved them one more time. And if you had died and you left your loved ones behind in pain and grief with their regrets, then what might be something you would do if you could? You might come back and tell them, I'm okay. I'm not here with you anymore, but I'm okay. And you'll be okay. This is painful, but you'll be okay. Jesus didn't go before the whole world bathed in divine glory, declaring who he is and announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. Instead, in a very understated, personal, and intimate way, Jesus returned to his loved ones, left behind in pain and in grief and in fear of what was to come, sitting with the regrets about what they had done and what they could have done for him. And Jesus attended to them, letting them know, I am okay. The way I left you was horrific for both of us. But I'm okay now, and you'll be okay too. He could have returned in the proverbial wind or earthquake or fire, grabbing the attention of the world. But no, he returned in a whisper to tell his loved ones, don't be filled with regrets about what was or what should have been. It had to go down this way. It was always meant to go down this way. And I'm okay now. And you'll be okay too. To give loved ones a chance to say a proper final goodbye 
in a way, this is one of the most human things Jesus could have done. So in this final chapter of the book of Luke, we shine a light on the two natures of Jesus, God and human being. But even as it turns up the wattage on his divinity, it can't help but let his humanity shine even brighter. That's how much his natures are intertwined. And by learning more about Jesus in the book of Luke, we don't just have a greater understanding of God. We have a greater understanding of ourselves because we are learning about someone who is fully human. To follow Jesus is to find our own humanity in how we love, in how we experience joy, in how we experience pain, in how we struggle, in how we succeed. Jesus is a mirror as to how we can be what we are meant to be. And he is a template on how we can address not only theoretical, theological concerns, but how we can address the real-life concerns in our lives, in our communities, in our societies. I'm not saying we should take a what-would-Jesus-do approach as though there's only one or two divinely inspired actions for every situation. I am saying that God is in the process of redeeming this world. How can we join God in that work? Look to Jesus, the example of what humanity in synchronization with God looks like. When, we, when God is at work healing the sick and injured around us, let us become like Jesus with the paralyzed man and seek their healing. When God is at work caring for those who have been shunned and rejected, let us become like Jesus with Zacchaeus and be God's voice of welcome. When God is at work asking people to show compassion for those facing injustice, let us become like Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan and share God's wisdom through narrative. When God is at work seeking to connect with us in our moments of exhaustion and grief, let us be like Jesus in Gethsemane and stop and receive God's comfort. And when God is at work bringing what was dead back to life, let us become like Jesus Nain and show to the world that there is nothing and no one that God cannot restore and redeem, no matter the consequences. Let us follow in the footsteps of Jesus, not to grasp at equality with God, but to reflect God and God's goodness and to live to the fullest the human lives we are meant to live. As a symbol of this united work between God and humanity, we have received the sacrament of communion. I invite Pastor Tom to come up and to lead us in this ritual that gives us a glimpse at what it looks like to be hand in hand, step in step with God and our neighbor, past and present. Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, you are a pastor's pastor. Sometimes we can sometimes get a little bit heady in our services. Today was somewhat heady, but so much full of love and showing a side of Jesus that I think is attractive. It's what makes me want to follow Jesus, a, a God who is human and divine, a God who cares about each and one of us. There's two passages that I really like in the Bible. One is the parable of the lost son, and the other is the road to Emmaus, which is what Pastor Mark covered today. Um, I know many people who use the road to Emmaus as a form of meditation, and maybe they'll read it every day for seven days with the hope that as they read it, and they read it repetitively, that they will begin to experience the presence of God. 
They read it every day for seven days because they hoped to receive guidance from God. In the story that we just went through, clearly you had two people who were hurting. Their God, their Savior, their Messiah, he, he died on a cross, and then he was gone. And so they're on their way now to Emmaus, and they're brokenhearted, they're hopeless. But the God of Jesus, as Pastor Mark was talking about, doesn't abandon these people. He, he goes to them. And at first they don't recognize him, but he listens to them, and he speaks to them, and reminds them of the Bible and his story of why the world had to, for his life, how to turn out that way. And then ultimately, they recognize him when they have a meal with Jesus. I know for us today, we may all be in different places. Maybe we're a granddaughter who uh, has recently lost the grandpa. Maybe we're a couple that's trying to figure out you know, should we have another child? Maybe it's a mother who just sent their children off to college and they're, they're bothered and they're concerned about their children. This calls for the road to, Medea, uh, to uh, Emmaus, a time of reading those words and meditating and praying that God will show up. And maybe God will show up through Scripture. And maybe God will show up through friends. Or maybe God's going to show up through a meal, a meal of communion. I think that's why we do communion every week. It's giving us an opportunity to take what we've sung and what we've heard and then to find Jesus in the midst of us, in the midst of us, to either just cry out in pain or to hear something. And so let us celebrate the communion together. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Everyone is welcome to the table.